0: in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm going to do I can get what
1: I want. I can get plush
0: to paper. <laughs>
2: Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
1: I'm Claire
3: Maldarelli, And I'm Eleanor Cummins.
2: Wow, welcome back. Season three. Season three. It's amazing. We're so happy to be here. So a couple things to check in about now that we are back in your feed for season three, which is going to be fantastic, as always. We have loved all of your user contributions. I'm sure you enjoyed our special little drop-in episodes. And anytime is a good time to send us voice messages on the Anchor app or the Anchor website. You can continue to send us your questions. Your weirdest thing facts, and we will absolutely do more of those kinds of episodes. We also want to thank you so much for all of your hard work. Typing out those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on Apple, it helps other weirdos find the show. And I am sure that this episode is going straight into the ear canals of a whole new bunch of weirdos because you helped the Apple algorithm figure out how great we are. And one more thing is that we are going to have a live show on Halloween, bah, bah,
1: bah, bah. <laughs> spooky. Yeah,
2: we're all very excited. I'm, I'm, absurdly excited because weirdest thing is a show that's already pretty weird. Yes, often spooky. Indeed. I would say sometimes horrifying. We try. So it really, we feel that we are the perfect live Halloween entertainment for you, New York City, and so we will be live at Caveat in New York City on October 31st. It's a Thursday. So even if you usually go all crazy for Halloween, you know, maybe you're a responsible adult and or student and a Thursday night is not a good night for a Halloween rager. Counterpoint, come to Caveat, have a drink or two, be home by 10 p.m., wear costumes. So it's not too early to start buying tickets. All of our previous live shows have been sold out, standing room only. So you'll definitely want to go to popsy.com slash weird or go to Caveat's website, Google Popsy, Halloween, Caveat, New York City. You'll find it. Don't worry. And you can snag your tickets right away. Okay, that's it. So let's get on to the show. On The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we came across in the course of reading, writing, reporting, checking our emails, getting excited about Weirdest Things Season 3, and we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Eleanor, Why don't you start us off with your tease? I want to talk about how
3: Eleanor Roosevelt, for whom I am named, (laughs) died. Are you really? Yes. The one, the only. The woman, the myth, the legend. Yeah, she had a she had a pretty brutal death, and I'm just here to explore that.
2: <laughs> Great.
3: I have
1: no idea.
2: I, I remember was it the, our very first episode where you talked about yes. Eleanor Roosevelt's baby cages? I can't get
3: enough of her. Yeah, she put her kid in a cage for their health. <laughs> um, she really is just a
2: medical marvel. <laughs> wow, <laughs> Claire, what's your fact?
1: Yes, I would like to talk about the fact that there is no scientific basis for walking 10,000 steps in a
2: day. Oof. For shame. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that the takeaway? Yes. All right. Okay. I'm interested to hear more about that. My fact is more of a series of facts that I learned on a secret tour of a poop factory. Amazing. Yes. Excellent. I love poop. <laughs> Who doesn't? That that, that, that car, car loves horror. poop. Loves poop. <laughs> Has honked. Toot, toot, beep, beep. Poop, poop. <laughs> Okay, so what do we want to start with? Poop. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All stories begin with poop and end with poop, really, if you think about it. Like life. Yeah.
1: It's, it does, though, sometimes babies are born with
3: poop. <laughs> it's true. You and you poop
2: them. when you die. And you poop when and you, you die. Poop when you wow. Die. Okay, so yes, as some of you who follow us on com or who follow me on Twitter may already know, a few months ago, I took a trip to Cincinnati it was my second (laughs) one of the greatest
1: places in America it was my
2: second work trip to Ohio in one calendar year oh woo! don't don't say I don't have a glamorous job (laughs) so yes not to be confused with my work trip to Columbus my work trip to Cincinnati took me to the Procter & Gamble Charmin facilities The toilet paper people. I keep calling it the poop factory, which I feel like the people at Procter & Gamble probably would like me to stop doing.
3: They're the Willy Wonka of defecating.
2: Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And there are certainly researchers there who understand that and would find that whimsical and delightful. You may say, Rachel, it's not a poop factory. They make toilet paper, not poop. That's Which I, I would say, say that's incorrect. What
1: focusing on. They
2: so. make poop there too. Got him. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's kind of the crux of my my fact. That's the biggest fact. That's what they use to lure me to Cincinnati. So I'll save that for last. But I'm just gonna go through some of the things that I learned. Number one, there are robots devoted to wiping your butt. Not literally. I I would never want that. So Procter and Gamble has this analytical lab that's just full of super calibrated instruments designed to test various paper properties and an increasing number of these are autonomous robots. Mm-hmm. So they showed me this one robot. It was one of those like generic like arm robots that you see in like car factories and stuff, but all it does is pick up little tiny strips of toilet paper <laughs> and move them over to an apparatus. That grabs them and then slowly pulls them (laughs) apart so that it can calculate exactly at what amount of force. The paper tears. That's
3: amazing,
2: and it just does this over and over again for its entire life.
3: Is it? <laughs> are all of these robots like just protecting you from your fingers coming through your toilet paper? <laughs>
2: yes. Okay. Ultimately, yes. God's work. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> companies like Procter and Gamble they're testing their own products, prototypes for new products, and competitors' products to see how things measure up. And so they have one that, like, tests exactly what angle a paper drapes at when it, like, hangs off a roll. Mm-hmm. And they have – but then they have ones that, yeah, it's like a metal probe the size of a finger. Mm. And the sheet is, like, gently stretched just enough to hold it in place. And you're testing exactly how much force the metal probe <laughs> that's like a finger needs to break through it and then they do it again when it's wet so yeah it's to, to, to keep your fingers from poking through and touching your poop that's incredible and it's crazy because we think of <laughs> toilet paper at least i do it as being a very like simple product but it has a really hard job it's A tug of war between softness and strength. That was the thing that the the engineers kept imparting to me. Yes, same, (laughs) relatable. But yeah, like a sheet of toilet paper, it has to hold up really well, even if it gets a little wet, because like it's a very dynamic process wiping um, a butt and surrounding regions. There can be moisture and you need to not suddenly be covered in poop right? Desperately. (laughs) But then it also, once it hits the water, after a reasonable number of seconds, it has to break apart really effectively and really quickly. Or it clogs up your plumbing or your sewer. So yeah. And the thing is that like the stronger you make the toilet paper, the less soft it is. And people really Mm. care about toilet paper being soft because it is on your butt. So that's understandable.
1: I really like soft toilet paper.
2: <clears throat> Remember in
3: Legally Blonde when Elle <laughs> Woods yes. and her application to Harvard, part of the supercut is her amendment to the sorority <laughs> <laughs> toilet paper <laughs> supply.
2: All those in favor
3: of double ply say aye or whatever.
2: <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about that so much lately. It really got me thinking about qualities I just take for granted in toilet paper. I just assume it's going to work reasonably well. And like even at Charmin, they have two main products. One is like focused on strength and one is focused on softness. And they're both pretty plush, but they have those two products because they're people who think of themselves as being like more practical. They're like, I want my family to like get the most utility out of our toilet paper as possible. And so they don't want it to feel too soft. But then there are people who are like, if it doesn't feel as soft as possible, It's not going near my tookests. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But then all of this analytical research also helps them figure out how to make these qualities come through while using as little actual paper and as little water as possible. So like those printed patterns you'll see on Mm. toilet paper are all like designed to You know, maybe make it more absorbent while using less paper. so cool. Like cut down on water and the production use. And then also like the more effective toilet paper is, in theory, the less of it you have to use. Though then like a lot of consumers don't think about that. So another big takeaway from my time at the factory was like think about how much toilet paper you actually need. And especially if you're buying this really plush toilet paper, you should be like being real with yourself Yeah. About how many sheets you require. 17. (laughs) (laughs) Because, and here's another fact, fluffy white paper does not come from recycled paper. It comes from trees. It's really pretty difficult to make soft and strong toilet paper using recycled fibers because they're shorter than virgin paper fibers. So that's why the Natural Resources Defense Council actually did this review of toilet papers and Charmin's got like an F. And pretty much every toilet paper with, like, soft in the name got a D or an F, even if it was from a company like Trader Joe's that had other products that got B's or A's. Because, yeah, the kind of, like, dirty secret that's not really a secret is that no one has figured out how to use recycled paper to make soft toilet paper. It's always going to be that product that feels, like, less good. Which is not to say people shouldn't use it. I definitely buy recycled toilet paper more than I buy... Fluffy toilet paper, but that's because it doesn't particularly bother me. I guess I kind of feel like I deserve bad toilet paper because sure. we've destroyed the planet. I don't know. But I grew uh, up
1: on recycled toilet paper. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, "If it goes on your butt, it needs to be recycled." <laughs> that's, <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful philosophy. Yeah, but it backfired because now I buy the <laughs> plushest possible. Yeah, So I'm like all
3: I'm out. An
2: adult. I'm an adult.
1: I can get what I want. I can get plush toilet paper. <laughs>
2: So yeah, it's like, I'm not going to tell anybody what kind of toilet paper to buy. I will occasionally buy plush toilet paper. It certainly feels like Treat yourself. Right. But it is important that people remember it's a much more complex paper product than like the paper you put in the printer at work. And it's way harder to make it recycled.
3: Yeah, I personally only wipe my butt with old growth forests. So. (laughs)
1: I'm so jealous it's a problem with me was that I just I left the house and I went to other people's houses and they had really close to paper
2: (laughs) we're gonna get more into Claire's childhood um, in a little bit okay here's another great one it takes six months to train to be a sensory tester at Procter & Gamble.
1: Oh, my God. And so
2: these are people who are mostly like students or like stay-at-home parents or retirees who are looking for just like an interesting way to pick up some extra cash and spend a few hours of their day. There are qualities of toilet paper that you can't measure in an analytics lab. You know, you can't have a robot yet tell you like, this one feels squishier, and this one looks Mm. brighter, and this one smells nicer. So there are humans who are trained to rate things like that on numerical scales so that they can get huge data pools and, you know, compare various products. And, yeah, they spend six months training in every sense but taste, (laughs) which makes sense. (laughs) And then only half of them actually make it through. Cutthroat. Yeah. And other things... That can't be done by robots yet. So, you know those weird product demos? Yeah. Where they'll, like, take a piece of toilet paper and, like, pile marbles on top of it until it like, oh, breaks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's somebody. Or
1: pour, they'll pour the blue, yeah. blue liquid onto it. Always blue it liquid. And yeah. lift it up and hold the two up and be like, look at this superior product <laughs> that I have. Yes.
2: Yes, exactly. So I got to play around with a bunch of those. And there there are people whose job it is to design them. So, like, stacking marbles on a stretched out piece of tissue... Might seem simple, but someone has to figure out exactly how many marbles a right. sheet of Charmin can handle versus a competitor. So they need to figure out fun little experiments that will actually translate the superiority of the product, the supposed superiority, to the viewer. Like and a then, magic yeah. show. Yeah, it is like a magic like show.
3: Like and Teller.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then even once they determine these little tricks, some of them are not fit for television. Like one that I was shown that is top secret and only used internally called the balloon butt. Oh. They took a balloon and they kind of like stretched the balloon so that it creates like a fold, like a dimple Mm. along the balloon. And they've squirted stuff in it so that (laughs) then it's created a butt in the balloon. (laughs) And now there's poop in the butt. And so then they wipe the balloon butt and then they release the balloon. So, some of the balloon butts still have poop stuck in them.
1: So it's like it's like moment of truth when you release right. the balloon. Right? Yeah,
2: and it's really as close as you can get to just like wiping a butt crack, and then looking at the butt crack to see how much poop's left. <laughs> exactly, but with a balloon. And I was like, "This is amazing! This is the best thing I've ever seen. That is amazing. It's brilliant." And they were like, yeah, they, they wouldn't let us put it on TV. And then I asked for it specifically for the article and I got a one line response. We cannot send you the balloon butt clip. Oh, my God. So, oh, so sad. Free can... the balloon butt. <laughs> OK, so now we're going to talk about the poop factory. Yay! Aspect. Poop. There is poop in the factory. Yes. <laughs> Even though you see stuff tested with blue goo on TV, that's just because it looks the least like something that could show up on your toilet paper as like any color they could think of. Uh, Though we have talked about how you can have blue pee in your diaper if you're a baby um, on a previous episode of Weirdest Thing. Or a vampire. Right. Or if you have porphyria. Thank you, Jess. But for actual testing, they need stuff that is like poop. So. For a long time they used NASA's fake poop called clone. I hate that the to, name? Yeah. Yeah. So the clone is this very like clay-like substance and it's specifically designed for testing plumbing systems, but it doesn't really feel like poop. And they were like, what about when we want to actually like wipe the poop? The clone right. was not sufficient. So then they developed their own fake poop. And what it, did
1: they call it? Do they have a name for it?
2: Patent number Five, nine. <laughs> uh, they call it an artificial BM. Oh, oh great. Yeah. There so, are so
1: many synonyms for poop. There Just are a lot of euphemisms
2: there. at Charmin, I will say that. Yeah. So it comes in three varieties to go from like light diarrhea, <laughs> not like liquid, but like Not great. Yeah. And like, then there's like the perfect, the platonic ideal of poop. And then there's one that's just like a little constipated. And it's made with all ingredients that you would find in like a a kitchen cupboard. And it does kind of smell like spice racky. So I would imagine there's some kind of like flour in there and.
3: So what you're saying is we can also make
2: our own artificial BM. Probably. And Happy you try Halloween. <laughs> And
3: eat it. I'm going to bring them to the live show.
2: More <laughs> reasons true. to get it ticket. When they said it was all stuff you found, you can find in your kitchen cabinet, I really should have just picked it up and eaten it. I don't think... A hundred percent. Been like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just see. <laughs> Trust, but verify. Um, I taste some cinnamon. <laughs> yeah. So... They use this for a few things internally, but it's mostly used on their one-on-one interviews, which is where they will sit with people and talk to them extensively about how they use toilet paper. And I experienced this. The takeaway is that I was unexpectedly asked very detailed questions about how I poop. Really? In front of strangers Mm. and in front of Jason Letterman holding a camera (laughs) and laughing at me. (laughs) And so that was... I was flustered. And I was also like, if I'm flustered, me who loves writing about poop and talking about poop, like, yeah. imagine a lesser mortal in this situation. <laughs> but, you know, they'll ask things like, how do you, show us how you grasp your implement, which is Whoa. toilet paper. Sounds maybe like something else, but toilet paper. <laughs> and so I was actually, I was like, I don't, I honestly don't know, like, how I take toilet Wait, paper off the roll.
1: I- Okay, I have something to add to this. I have a friend that thinks there are two types of people in this world. Yes. One type that takes toilet paper and folds it nicely into, like, a square situation. And then another group that just takes it and
2: like, squishing it I, all together. I definitely am a squisher.
1: So I fold
3: every <laughs> single time. It makes sense for you. <laughs> I'm also a folder.
1: What? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Everybody's different, and that's why Sharman and Procter and & Gamble have these questionnaires. And so, yeah, she was like, show us how you retrieve and grasp your implement. <laughs> and I was like, I honestly— cannot remember. <laughs> and so there was like a roll of toilet paper and she was like, okay, well, what side would it be on if you were sitting on your toilet at home? So she had me like replicated, squat next to, the, next to it in the appropriate spot. But yeah, so you're just like in a room with somebody, hopefully not with a bunch of strangers watching you and someone who you thought was your friend filming you. <laughs> and the fake poop comes in when they're like, okay, so we're going to have you create a fake butt. And so you either bend your knee or your elbow to make a little butt crease. Okay. And <laughs> this. This is the what? butt. I'm displaying the butt. It'll just be like in there, in the in the elbow, in the, um, what's the inside of your elbow called again? It has a funny name. This is your weenus, right? I was thinking of and this weenus. is your butt. It's the opposite of your weenus, this you know, round your... the corner is the weenus. The weenus and the balloon <laughs> and, butt, and a squirt, a little, a little turd of the fake poop in there, and then you squish your little oh, elbow butt oh together, God. and you're supposed to have your eyes closed and wipe the way you wipe your butt, which I was like, I don't. No.
1: It's the wrong angle. And
2: as I was doing it, they were like, wow, you're really getting in there. And I was like, (laughs) I (laughs) don't know. Oh, my God. And I was like, I don't know. Do I really get in there? Is that bad? At least my butt is clean. Wow. And I did I did successfully clean my elbow butt. I can't so. imagine doing that and then looking down and having there be fake poop all over my arm. <laughs> that sounds like an yeah. existential
3: crisis. Like,
2: yeah. It was it was the end of the day, and I didn't really know how to cope with any of it. I
3: would have walked away crying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I went to the airport and ate some Buckeyes, so that was okay. Tight. Yeah, that's all i have to say about about the fake poop what a world that was incredible i hope everyone thinks really hard about how they use their implements and how they might use them better i've been shaking to my core <laughs> okay we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts okay we're back and Claire, why don't you talk to us about 10,000 Steps?
1: Yes, great. I would love to. And how
2: we should never walk
1: <clears in. throat> Yeah, just don't listen to anything anybody <laughs> says to you ever. Okay, so we all know 10,000 Steps. Everyone has seen the Fitbit. But, you know, where did it come from is mm. a great question. I have no clue. So uh, a couple nights ago, I was brushing my teeth, and my toothbrush has, like, <laughs> <laughs> the sensor on it that does it for exactly two minutes. Right. It's the Sonicare Diamond Clean Plus, in case you were wondering. And so I was like, well, where did this two minutes come from? And right. when I looked at on the Internet, I really couldn't find anything. And so that's another question to look into But because I literally couldn't find anything. I couldn't say anything <laughs> for the podcast. So I was thinking, I was like, what are some other things that I do? Sleep eight hours a day. We've already talked about that. Right. So then it brought me to the 10,000 steps, I which is that. journey. Yes. Thank you. So there's just all these things that we are told to do every single day. So then I looked back at my Apple Watch analytics and I saw that on the days that I am not running where I take off because I'm training for some races right now. And I found that I do not take 10,000 steps on those days. I take no more than 5,000 or 6,000. So am I? hurting my health right. by doing that. So I looked back and tried to figure out where these 10,000 steps come from. And additionally, this made me nervous because I really couldn't find anything about like where where it came from or if there were any studies that said like taking 10,000 steps is a good thing. I found this one study in 2019 that basically found that we need to take far less steps in order to achieve optimal What Right. And so I was like, yes, bingo. So I (laughs) dove in. And one of the first things that they said was they, too, looked at their data and they were like, we're not taking 10,000 steps. Is this detrimenting our health? And so they basically did what I did, but then scientifically. And I was like, (laughs) this is great. In their discussion section, they actually have this whole description of where the 10,000 steps comes from. And it actually dates back to the history of the modern pedonics. Mm. And that the first modern pedometer actually came out in Japan in 1965, and it was based on this research by a group of heart doctors that saw a bunch of—the Japanese society was uh, gaining weight, and they thought that maybe they were being sedentary. And so by walking more that they would all—it was this huge public health campaign to sort of, like, lose weight. right? And uh, when they— designed this pedometer to sort of get people to lose weight. They called it Monpo Kei, which translates to the 10,000-step meter. That's what it's exactly called. And the reason is that when you look at it in Japanese characters, it looks like a person walking. So No way. Yes, and so I have an image of it for you.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, that is what yes. you're supposed to yeah, so it's supposed to symbolize someone like walking
2: has a sort of like a two hands so he's lost his head, yeah, it has no head. um it's it's very rough. Or he's, oh no, it's somebody. no, it's somebody walking and he has his arms thrown out behind him, okay and his okay, head I like thrown this. forward. Um, because yes. he's having so much fun walking, he's yeah. like head banging. A,
1: a brisk, like, aerodynamic.
2: <laughs> a brisk mall walker. Yes. maybe. Yeah, a really enthusiastic mall walker.
1: Right. Right. And so they were like, "This, this is great. Everyone in Japan is going to recognize this." And so then we're all going to take ten thousand <laughs> steps a day, and that's it. And it became this huge public I'm health campaign. So offended. <laughs> what a
3: lie. I'm I'm so surprised. I thought that you would know this. No, it's incredible. <laughs> I'm just wow. So uh, that Eleanor's
2: never walking anywhere again. Just <laughs>
3: <laughs> gonna get someone to carry me on like a divan or whatever those things are. Ariana Grande it. Yes.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the ad campaign went, let's all walk 10,000 steps a day with the little symbol, and they all recognized it, and everyone sort of started walking. And then that caught on to Fitbits in the United States, and when Fitbits became super popular in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. decade or two, everyone has been taking these 10,000 steps, and it has been driving some people crazy to mm-hmm. sort of get their steps in and... Like David Sedaris. Yes. If you an, ever want to listen to or read uh, David Sedaris's New Yorker article on it, it is amazing. And... Not only that, but it's become so synonymous with public health and our perception of what makes us healthy, that if you do take 10,000 steps, then you are preventing disease or something like that. And not just that, but the American Heart Association recommends 10,000 steps a day. And the Kaiser Permanente Health Group also has a program that's designed to help you gradually increase your fitness, physical activity level, and work towards a goal of 10,000 steps. Like, all these major health companies are associating 10,000 steps with health. And I feel actually enraged. <laughs> And so there have been a couple of studies that have sort of looked into the 10,000 steps and seeing if it does help our health. And some of them in the past, not this one from May, but in the past, they had found that, yes, like people who do walk 10,000 steps a day. It was kind of an association study. Right. Uh, they walk sure. 10,000 steps but, like, a day. So like people who
2: are aiming exactly. for that benchmark probably have other healthy lifestyle factors. Exactly. exactly.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So what this study did was it just took like a closer look, like if you take 2,000 steps, if you take 4,000 steps, Mm -hmm. 6,000, what does that do for your health? And they found that particularly for older women, those who took 4,400 steps a day had the same lower mortality rates as those who took 10,000 steps a day. Wow! And even people who took 2,700 steps a day weren't that much worse off than people who took the 4,400 steps a day. And so, essentially, the article was saying that this whole idea of 10,000 steps is unfounded. And on top of that, when they looked a little bit deeper, and a bunch of news articles, especially one from the New York Times, just kind of looked at, you know, what is this saying? And it saying that, even with just 10,000 steps, all we're doing is counting steps. Now you can walk really slowly (laughs) not raise your heart rate at all and still reach these 10,000 steps whereas people who are taking 3,000 or 5,000 but are also doing strength training or lifting an infant up or carrying a toddler around all day long are still raising their heart rates and so it's like very unfounded to say like 10,000 steps is going to help your health wow yes and from like a motivational perspective if you look at your pedometer and you say well I failed for that day but you really didn't right. and so over time if you like keep failing keep failing and you have all these or health organizations telling you that you should be taking 10,000 steps a day you can think that you're doing nothing for your health and that will kind of do the opposite of motivate you and make yeah. you say you know I just I give up I yeah. yeah
2: I mean we covered one study about getting more exercise that was like literally gardening is Mm-hmm. Good yeah. cardio, especially if you're older. I
1: remember that. You know, one.
2: you're like bending down and picking stuff up and walking around.
1: Yeah. So. And then <laughs> even like looking forward in the future of like how this is all gonna be tied to like health insurance and things like that. That right. like yeah. pedometers and all this like health tracking data is becoming so much more ingrained into
2: Eleanor's upset. <laughs>
1: I'm so upset. That that we really need to make sure that we dispel any of these myths and make sure that they are scientifically sound. So don't create public health campaigns based on um, Japanese characters. Japanese
3: characters,
1: or uh, you know, letters just
3: of any kind.
1: Yeah, you, you, I mean, they could have still used it as a symbol, but just yes. been like, look, this person's taking steps.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ten thousand, hundred thousand, one thousand, whatever you can do. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And Eleanor, it's time for you to talk about Eleanor. Yes. Okay, well, I think we all know that there is a proper
3: order in which to read a Wikipedia page. And it's... (laughs) the death section, (laughs) and then anything else you might want to know.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Wait, so do you read obituaries in... Oh, absolutely. Boy, Love it. Oh, my God. My dad would love you. One of his favorite (laughs) games is Guess Who Died, and I literally hate it. (laughs) When, like, famous people die, he texts, like, a group chat in our family, and he's like, Guess Who Died? And my sister and my cousin love it. They're like, oh, and they usually get it every single time. Whoa, that's amazing. I'm not participating. (laughs) I am living my
3: life please um, invite me to that group chat most of <laughs> so recently I was writing a piece for Popular Science about the preservation movement to protect historic buildings in New York City and Eleanor Roosevelt our esteemed first lady Eternal was a part of the fight to keep Washington Square Park intact and because I'm named for her I feel a special kinship with her I remember I did a like a book report on a biography of her in elementary school. But because I had mentioned her in this piece, you know, I just wanted to take a spin through her Wikipedia page and kind of freshen up on the timeline of her life. Mm. And this is what I found in the death section. Quote, In 1962, she was given steroids, which activated a dormant case of tuberculosis in her bone marrow, and she died of resulting cardiac failure at her Manhattan home at 55 East 74th Street on the Upper East Side on November 7, 1962, at the age of 78. Oh, God. And I was like, this is insane. But it got even crazier when I looked into the actual medical literature because, as is often the case, Wikipedia didn't get this exactly right. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning of the end.
2: An important lesson for us all. So in
3: 1960, at the age of 75, Roosevelt was traveling far and wide. She, you know, worked with the United Nations after her husband died. So she moved from the White House to this role in the international community. Like, she was super active. And she was known at this point as the first lady of the world. But she wasn't feeling well, so she went to her physician-slash-friend and, like, warning there, like, your doctor probably shouldn't be your friend. (laughs) David Gurwitch- And he diagnosed her with anemia, which is a low red blood cell count. And it can happen for a bunch of different reasons. But he recommended that she have her bone marrow aspirated so that doctors could see what the source of this anemia was. And they did. They found out that she had aplastic anemia, which is a very rare and terrible condition that can happen at any age. And basically, your bone marrow just stops producing red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And you need your red blood cells. They're very important. So when the factory shuts down, you do not do well. At the time, there was no cure. You can't get in
1: your steps.
3: (laughs) You cannot get in, in your steps at all. So at the time, there was no cure and there weren't even really any good treatments. Today, you can get blood transfusions, which she received. You can get different medications that have only come in the market in recent years. And you can also get stem cell transplants, which were not available at the time. So faced with really few options, Roosevelt, baller that she was, decided that she was just going to keep living her life. So she kept traveling, agitating for change, hanging out with friends and family, but cut to two years later and her condition has deteriorated by 1962 to the point that her doctors at Columbia Presbyterian take her in again for tests and they find not only is she low on red blood cells, but she's now low on blood platelets, which help blood clot, Mm. and also on white blood cells, which fight infection. So she is immunocompromised, like the very basic sort of life-giving function of blood, like not working. So it's at this point that she's prescribed prednisone, a steroid that can jumpstart the bone marrow, but also makes you really susceptible to infection, which is, you know, a common side effect of steroids. And she did start to show some kind of infection. She had a cough and a high sustained fever. So one thought was that she might have tuberculosis. It's uncommon in the U.S. today, but, like, less than a century ago, it was called the White Plague. It was the leading cause of death in New York City in 1900, where wow. we are right now, so we're not that far removed from it. It's basically this sort of—I was looking at photos of it today. It's, like, a little Cheeto-shaped bacteria. Wait,
1: Cheeto-shaped?
3: Yeah, like a little, you know, or, like, um, like ghost poop mm. kind of, like, looking. <laughs> like, it's very—it looks sort of swollen with water or something. It's It's, like— Fun and fluffy. And um, it colonizes your lungs. And so fun. Typically, Just fun and fluffy. Yeah. Typically after you come in contact with the sur- saliva of an infected person, so you know they laugh on you, and then you die. The main <laughs> symptoms are cough and fever, but if left untreated today you know the standard course of treatment would be antibiotics sometimes for up to 9 months so there oh, is yeah. very nine low months? adherence but your microbiome i know and people then don't do it and then you get antibiotic resistant tuberculosis oh. mm. bad if you have tuberculosis take all 9 months of your antibiotics
1: <laughs> is that because it lingers somewhere yeah like, it's just deep down brutal
3: like it is a very aggressive Damn. and talented Bacteria. So basically, yeah, you just fill up with fluid and you can't breathe properly and your lungs deteriorate under the pressure and you die. But in Roosevelt's case, at this point, the doctors, they take an x-ray and they're looking for that typical TB fullness in the lungs, which is sort of an indicator that there's something going on, but everything looks fine. And all they see are, like, these old scars indicating that she had TB once in the past. What they think happened was that in 1919, she had this illness that was diagnosed as pleurisy and was probably a misdiagnosis mm. of tuberculosis. Oh. And so it made her very sick, but, you know, there was no treatment at that time. And, you know, they're looking at it, like, five decades later. Like, they're like, okay, <laughs> moving on. Like, she doesn't have active tuberculosis. Except then, six weeks later, she's back in the hospital. Her fever won't break, and they don't know why. Why? Fun fact, this is called an FUO, a fever of unknown origin. Well,
1: <laughs> there are so many things in medicine of unknown origin. Yeah. yeah. And they're just like, we
3: have to just label it that.
1: Or, comma, unspecified. Mm.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, something of unknown origin or unspecified is very anxiety producing for mm-hmm. our doctors. And so, the medical team is sort of split now. They're like, half of them think that she has something called miliary tuberculosis, and the other half are like, no, this is something else entirely. Like, tuberculosis is not at play, but we don't really have any good suggestions. So if you thought regular tuberculosis sounded bad, miliary tuberculosis is absolutely horrifying. It's when tuberculosis escapes the lungs. And so it goes full body, sort of like metastatic cancer. Mm -hmm. It can destroy your joints. It causes swelling in the brain. It can destroy the filtration function of your liver and your kidneys. And it also impairs the heart's ability to pump blood. Yikes. Yes. So it's just, it's named for millet, the grain, because mm. it looks like your entire body is full of millet seeds.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. Gross. and sad.
3: Yeah. And so then the thing is, though half of the medical team is now convinced this is what she's suffering from, they can't see any of these millets yeah, in her Yeah, the millet
2: seeds? Yeah. Geniuses.
3: Yeah, exactly. So they're like, okay, fine. Like, half of them are, like, they're playing the long kong. And they're like, look, I'm right. So we're going to send her bone marrow for culturing. So in four to six weeks, tuberculosis will grow, and then we'll all know four that I was That's how long it took to culture.
1: Is she going to survive that with her unrelenting Great fever? question.
3: So in the interim, they decide to put her on a bunch of antibiotics. Like the care team that doesn't think it's tuberculosis, they're like, well, we can treat her for it, you know, and hopefully it'll help. Like there's some kind of infection, so we'll just give her a bunch of antibiotics and we'll wait it out. And on October 26th, Gurwitch's theory is validated. The culture grows TB. And he's like, great, I can save her now. Like, I've done it. But the Roosevelt family is like, this has gone on long enough. Because at the same time, all of this drama is unfolding in the clinic with, like, bone marrow aspirations and chest x-rays, Eleanor Roosevelt... This very real human being is right. suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at multiple times, she's like, I'm ready to die. Like, please right. How stop old is she at this intervening. Point um, she's in her late 70s. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so like
2: fair, especially at that time in yeah. history for her to be like palliative care. please, No
3: treatments. Like, Hospice. just let me like see my family. Yeah. Um, you know, and she's like such an active person. Like, I think when it was clear that, like, she wasn't going to be able to do the work that had animated her life, like, Mm -hmm. she was just like, I'm really sick and there's no cure. And her doctors were like, no, you are the first lady of the world and we will, like, prop you up weekend at Bernie style, no matter the cost. (laughs) So it's just been really harrowing for her. And, you know, they're like, oh, we have this new diagnosis and now we'll fix you. And she's like, I don't believe you. So she refuses additional treatment, and on November 4th, she has a stroke. She dies on November 7th. President Kennedy flies the flags half-mast around the nation, and she's buried for the record, because you know how much I care about this, at Hyde Park in Poughkeepsie, New York, where I have visited her grave. On the clinical side, they wrap up things in their own way with an autopsy, and what they find is truly horrifying. She had not just miliary tuberculosis, but something called disseminated tuberculosis acutissima, which sounds cute, but is actually an extremely rare and completely overwhelming TB infection. So it was in her lungs, her brain, her liver, her kidneys, literally everywhere TB could go, it was there. And there were few granulomas, which are those little cells that indicate that a patient is fighting Mm -hmm. off an infection. And so because of the prednisone, she was totally immunocompromised and her body had no way to fight back at all. Wow. At the time... Doctors concluded that her tuberculosis back in 1919 must have come back, and there is a lot of medical precedence for this. So it's called latent tuberculosis, and it's basically when you harbor the bacteria but you have no symptoms. So you're not you don't have that hacking cough, that like you don't have a fever, you don't look like you know Fonteen. like angelically, yeah, mm-hmm. like red in the face, but you have tuberculosis inside you. And about 10% of people with latent tuberculosis will go into active tuberculosis, but the risk is much higher with immunocompromised people. People because mm-hmm. they're not able to keep that in check. And that's why TB is such a serious problem among populations with high rates of HIV infections today. Mm-hmm. That's where you see like a lot of TB, you know, in 2019. So my story's over, right? <laughs> I thought it was over. I was ready to be done with diseases. <laughs> Even though, it I would like, sound to sleep like tonight, not possible. Everything I've told you comes from the work of Baron Leonard, who is a doctor and historian at New York University. And in 2000, he actually looked at Roosevelt's medical archives to piece this story together. After years of like rumor and intrigue about how she died, because a bunch of people were saying that she'd been mistreated. You know mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. they should have known it was tuberculosis all along, and actually helped her with that. And he was struck by the fact that. Working on the suspicion of miliary tuberculosis, Roosevelt's doctors put her on two kinds of antibiotics, but neither of them did anything to fight mm. the disease. Like the records right, show, didn't they
1: say like we'll just give it to her anyway? In right. the meantime, while TB is growing in the cells, yeah, like or they in the culture, did take the sort of a,
3: the advanced step to try to intervene. And the thing is, if her tuberculosis was from 1919. That was more than two decades before the first tuberculosis drugs were developed, so it couldn't have been antibiotic resistant. Mm. So what actually appears to have happened is that when she got sick with aplastic anemia and was immunocompromised by the prednisone, she got infected with a new antibiotic resistant strain of tuberculosis. Mm. And those things, both untreatable at the time, are what ended up killing her. Wow. So in the Washington Post in 2000, BH Lerner, writing about this, you know, um, sort of, academic article he'd published wrote why if the autopsy showed drug-resistant tuberculosis has the perception so long persisted that columbia's medical staff could have saved eleanor roosevelt whether in the 1960s or today americans too often view death as a failure if someone dies especially of a disease that is often treatable we assume that a mistake must have been made but roosevelt herself had realized the fallacy of this argument some patients die because of medical mistakes but other patients just die wow And that's why you always click through the little Wikipedia
2: citations. (laughs) Wow. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Oh, man. I'm going to go with the 10,000-step man. I'm that that, The fact that, like, no one, either Mm -hmm. people haven't bothered to look into that before using it as, like, a benchmark of of public health recommendations or have found that and been like, eh, still seems like a good round number to me. Wild. Truly wild.
1: Mm -hmm. 100% with you.
2: I am all for a cutesy marketing campaign. Um, if it is
1: based on true fact, with scientific fact, even if it's just
2: like I mean, like no you know the the people of Japan are not responsible yes, for the rest totally. of the world running with the, this walking recommendation this fact, yeah, yes, so wow, mm-hmm. congrats, Claire. Thank you. Just Indeed. walked away with it. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share,
0: tweet us at weirdest underscore